Good morning, family, brothers and sisters. Today we're going to hear a lesson about the fig tree. We're in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word. All praise to God. Well, good morning. It's, uh, spring is upon us. I have an appropriate passage here as we transition seasons. Um, I, I want to start by just recognizing that generally I think that this passage is thought as um, difficult to deal with. I know uh, Per, who is out in, in, in Pittsburgh today, suffering in that, that woeful, awful city, He and I were talking about this passage um, in the back last Sunday. And I think that unless you already know what this passage means, um, it's not that difficult. So I'll say that again. It, if you're approaching this passage for the first time with a lot, without a lot of preconceptions, I think that this passage isn't quite as difficult as perhaps... You may think, as perhaps people have said, as perhaps we've struggled with it over time. Um, now, I say that on the heels of our study from last week, which was, well, it was really around three views on the end times, though it was the passage just preceding this, or the section just preceding this, um, which was, oh, <laughs> I am flipped to Mark. Excuse me, I'm flipped to Matthew. So let me get to the right book. Um, verses 24 through 27, which talks about the coming of Christ and end times. And so we talked about those three views, those three views being primarily amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Um, I shared with you that that I, and generally the, the way that we teach here is a, is a pre premillennial view. Um, much of the views really kind of have this disagreement around whether or not there is a literal millennial period, whether or not there is a literal 1,000 years. Uh, we actually turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, which six times talks about the 1,000 years, which is the literal view that we take. And so I'm going to, again, lean into what we call the historical grammatical hermeneutic. And I think I said last week, that's 25 cent word. If you want to sound smart, you can cash that in. It simply means the way that we understand as we read the scripture would be the way that you would normally understand grammatics, normally understand grammar, um, the way that you would normally read things. So sometimes you're reading something and it's in a specific genre. Maybe it's poetry. You read that the way that you would read poetry, so you don't ignore words like 
like, right? That means as if or seeming like. And so we read Scripture in that same way. Also, with a view for history, when in time was this written? Who was it written to? How might they understand these words? Right? So maybe you've um, heard of the Strong's Concordance before, right? So somebody sat down and put a number on every word in the, in the Greek text or, or, or perhaps the Hebrew text. Shows You can look at how many times those words are used. And so you can look at the text under the text, if you will, or the text that your English translation came from. And what you can actually start to do wrong there then would be described as if I was to tell you and you were just learning English. You were just learning the English language and I said, I went to the boardroom and you said, okay, great. And you sat down with a dictionary to understand where I might be and translate it into your own language. You could get a very wrong understanding of what the boardroom was. But because we're English speakers, I think generally speaking, when I say boardroom, you probably don't think of a room full of wood. You probably think of a conference room or a meeting room. And so in that same sense, a grammatical, historical reading helps us get to right conclusions about what's being said. And so if you start with a grammatical, historical reading of Scripture and a plain reading of Scripture without being overly creative, I would argue that you will consistently come out with one view, and that's premillennialism. More or less than that requires some philosophical musings. Now, there are absolutely brilliant people who are not premillennial, and that's okay. I mean, I think it's okay for people to be wrong. I'm okay with being in the same room with wrong people. I say that kind of kidding. I do feel strongly that I'm seeing things correctly, but I'm, I'm glad to be corrected if it comes from Scripture and reason. I think we should be able to look at our text and say why we believe what we believe. Um, now, that doesn't mean you have to have your theological bags packed so tightly that there is no room, but your conviction should be from Scripture, not just from what you've heard before, perhaps, or what you've been told. And if there is something where you're like, gosh, I do just believe that because I've been told, that's fine. Uh, scripture says for us, encourages us to explore, to look more deeply, to test all things to see if they're so. And so that's the great freedom in this life. It's the great freedom uh, that God has given us with his word that we can look to see what is so, what is truth. And that's great. And the amillennial view, we said, so I'll just go through the three views, amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial. In the amillennial view, we said that, that this camp would say that scripture, when it speaks of the kingdom, is more of a spiritual kingdom that there's not a literal millennial period on earth, there's not a 1,000-year reign, um, that there's not a time where 1,000 years passes before Jesus' return, and that many of the promises that were made to Israel then transfer or become fully realized in the church. So if God made a promise to, to Israel, the nation of Israel, then that promise is realized fully, completely, and in the end through the church would also say that the future kingdom and new life in heaven comes after this life and that you wouldn't be looking forward to a physical uh, kingdom. Postmillennial would say that the period that we're now in a period of extended peace on earth and that Christian preaching and teaching on moralism is going to make the world increasingly better as people come to see things the way that we see them, and so things will get progressively better in this life. 
government, philosophy, other religions, all kinds of things come to be subject under the church. And the premillennial view, or my view, or the view that we teach from, is an output of the grammatical historical reading of Scripture that says that Jesus comes before his 1,000 years on earth to a wicked place, and we're currently preparing that wicked place for him and probably doing a pretty good job at that currently. That he would return, take his church, and the rest continues as we studied from last week. So those are the three generally like broad brush views of the end times. So if you recall also last week, we said what you believe of end times or how you understand these sections in Scripture shape how you understand what will happen in the end. And this can have very real impacts on your faith, how you read the rest of Scripture, how you understand your security. And by security, I don't mean your physical security. I mean, how do you understand your salvation? Who's under whose power is that salvation held? Right When the Scripture says something like, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ, when you rightly understand the Scripture, you understand that that means even you, you are in creation, even you can't separate yourself from the love of God in Christ. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the impact of the fullness of the wrath of God against the sin of the elect being poured out on Christ on the crucifixion. What we said is that the way you understand end time shapes your faith. And so these are important issues. Um, you know, I don't wake up in the morning, grab my coffee, you know, my dog brings me my newspaper and my slippers, mostly because my dog constantly runs away. And I don't open the newspaper to see where the most recent earthquake was or where there are wars and rumors of wars and try to see if the end is near. I just accept that we are in the end times. Could be now, could be two years, 500 years, and so on. I, I trust the Lord with that timing. So in Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31, we're picking up in this section where Jesus is answering the questions from his four disciples. Tell us when these things will be so. And so that's where we are. Jesus is, is still speaking to that. In verse 28, he says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have a fig tree, nor do I know any of the fig tree's lessons. We joked around this morning, um, about planting a biblical forest out front. It'd be terebinth tree, a fig tree, some gopher wood. But I don't really know very much about trees. In fact, when someone knocked on my door one time and said, hey, uh, I want to look at your trees and shrubs and see if you need some service. It looks like you have some animals that are attacking your trees. And he came back and we, have this, we used to have this really, really impressive oak tree in the front of the house. And then we had this really cool cherry tree in our backyard, and it would drop cherries all over the ground. At first, when we moved in, I didn't know if they were edible, because, again, I don't know anything about trees or fruit, so I let the kids eat it, and then I observed them. And 
they seemed to be okay. And so then we started eating them, and they were great. So the salesperson comes back, of course, and says, oh my gosh, you've got these invasive species, and here's a picture of them on a card. They're going to kill your trees, so you have to pay me money to save them. So I did. I paid the money to save my trees. The next year, the cherry, stopped, cherry trees stopped producing fruit. Never, never, not even a single cherry, cherry came off of that tree ever again. Um, they drilled into the side of it and pumped some kind of a chemical in there. Um, they killed all of our rose bushes. They killed the oak tree out front. Lower Paxton Township wrote us and said we had to have the tree removed because branches were falling and it was dangerous. We had an arborist come and said, yeah, these are dead trees, man, who gave us a number that made my eyes turn into saucers inside my face to remove our cherry tree, our oak tree, and a couple of other trees in the backyard. I did what I always do when there's money to be spent. I drug my feet. And then finally we went to meet someone for another quote. And as we were walking up to the house to, to get a quote, I looked and you could see that this tree was laying like this. And it had fallen into the fence next to it. And so we had to pay the guy, I think it was $3,000 to remove these trees. So I know there is something very specific to be known about trees. I just know that I don't know it. But Jesus doesn't ask us to be creative and be an arborist. What he says is, from the fig tree learn its lesson. And then he helps us out. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near. Now that I understand. I drive through town. Um, I really never know where I am. I actually made some wrong turns going to Justin and Lisa's house last night and had to do several U-turns. It was embarrassing because I've been to their house I don't know how many times. But I, I, I take a couple of back roads around town that I know, and they're probably the long way, but they're the way I know. And I, One thing I really like to do in the fall or throughout the winter, is when all the leaves have fallen out off of the trees, I like to look in through the trees, into the woods, and see if I can see deer and other scurrying animals in there. And it always blows me away that in the wintertime, you can see through Pennsylvania woods from one end to the other, because the Pennsylvania woods aren't very big anyway, right? There's always someone's house there, or some kind of a boundary edge. We don't have, we don't have big woods in Pennsylvania. But when the summer comes, it's drastic. Those same woods that I could see all the way through in Pennsylvania, when the summer comes and everything is blooming, you can't see a couple of feet into those same woods. When, when we moved here from New Mexico, I, I used to joke that the Lord's palette in New Mexico is brown. When we lived there, everything was brown. There's not very much green. You do what you call xeriscaping. People don't grow grass. They pour rocks. So I imported East Coast living to New Mexico we actually had people that would walk through, cross behind our fence, behind this little housing development and look at our grass uh, because we lived in the county. And so in the county, they didn't have water restrictions. And I had, um, I bought, um, uh, what is that? You roll out your grass sod, thank you. Uh, mine is a terrible thing. Um, I bought sod and I, I, I put an irrigation system in. Like it took months, I was insane. I was out there like raking the rocks out of the hard soil and I would scoop it up with a shovel and throw it over the fence. And I would forget what time it was. You know, I remember my neighbors, this is how I met my neighbors. They screamed at me to shut up one night because I was throwing rocks over the fence in the shovel. But then I had this lush garden of grass in the backyard and everyone was confused by it. 
when we moved from New Mexico and we moved to Pennsylvania, at some point during the drive, I said to Brianna, I said, everything is so green. This is insane. Everywhere you look, everything is green and the houses have colors. They're not shades of tan. So I do understand what Jesus is saying about the lesson from the fig tree. Soon as the branch becomes tender and the little buds start to come off of it, we know what's happening in Pennsylvania. The plumes of pollen are coming. You see them like waves, right? You come outside and you know your car is white, but it looks green or yellow. And you can see it blowing around the trees in the air. No more will we be able to stare into the woods. We'll look at the front of the woods that are impenetrable by your eyes. In verse 29, Jesus says, So also, all right, so picking up from knowing the signs, seeing that things are starting to change, and because things are starting to change, we know what comes next. Leaves and lush forest. Verse 29, So also, when you see these things taking place, you know He is near at the very gates. People have indexed pretty heavily on these things to explain this passage. And and I think that the rest of the verse 29 is actually really key as opposed to the these things. So if we look up to chapter 13, verse 3, we see what's kind of happening. They're sitting in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And, and if, you're, if you're there, if you're in this area, you see down over the valley, and now you would see a big gold you know, mosque in that area, but they're looking down over the valley into this area. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately this question. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, they're asking him, he's just told them about the destruction of the temple, that these things that they're asking about is the destruction of the temple. They're saying, hey, Jesus, tell us about this. Now, I don't know if you've met Jesus, and by met Jesus, I mean read much of him in the Scriptures, but often people ask him a question, and he gives an answer, and when you're done reading it, you're like, well, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. He didn't answer their question at all. He just said what he wanted to say. In verses 1 and 2, he tells the disciples about a pending destruction of the temple, which did come to pass in 70 AD. And we know Jesus was 30, 33 years old. So 40 years after his ascension, this came to be. And then they ask to better understand that. And he talks about a transitional period where there are Rumors of wars and wars, and there are false Christs. Verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. In verses 7 and 8, he continues through. He talks about a period of unrest. and He says this is like birth pangs. Now if you think about birth pangs, if you've had children... And by had children, I mean maybe you are the person that had children. 
maybe you say you had children, but you were just kind of in the room hanging out, right? Maybe you're like freaked out by it if you're like me. Like, I, I, you don't want me around in a medical situation. There's something about people that are hurt or in some kind of a medical scenario. I don't want to touch them, see them, or be near them. So I'm not the best person to have in the room for these kinds of things. Um, if you're hurt, I immediately, I don't, I kind of don't want to look at you. I don't want to touch you because it weirds me out. These birth pains are signs of what is to come. They aren't necessarily the event, right? This is what's leading up to it. Contractions, all kinds of things are going on that's preparing for the birth. The unrest that begins. Wars, national revolt, earthquakes, famines. All taking place leading up to some event. Continuing on, verse 10. Sorry, this spans a couple pages for me here. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Was the gospel proclaimed to all nations before 70 AD and before the destruction of the temple? This is what I mean about an historical grammatical reading. You start to order up these timelines, start to order up these events and think about well, what, what picture is Jesus drawing? What kind of timeline, what kind of events is Jesus talking about? How can I look back and think about the things I know that have happened across history? So what I love about Scripture. You know, when you go to Israel, they talk about these mountains that are called a tell. The tell is that inside there, if you were to dig, is history. Layers and layers of history. When Brianna and I lived in Naples, Italy, um, we, we had this apartment, and one of the things that was cool and not cool at the same time is right next to the apartment was this fireworks factory, okay? Which sounds like it would be awesome until you live next to a fireworks factory, all right? So you can imagine what they do. They, you know, they test their fireworks, and they don't test them during the day. They test them at like midnight or two in the morning, and we had a baby at the time, right? So you just give up. You stand out on the porch, Right? Two in the morning, you just stand out on the porch with a screaming baby and you just watch the fireworks. Might as well. It's pretty cool. And right across from us, for years, we watched where they tried to build in another apartment. And the thing that they would say all the time was, as soon as you scratch the ground, it turns into an archaeological dig. And that happened right across, this, right across the parking lot from us. They tried to build this building. They started to do the excavation to make the foundation. Probably tried to go as shallow as they could. Oh, they found an artifact. So it became an archaeological dig. And so we would stand there at night under the fireworks and see all this cool stuff in the ground. So what I love about Scripture is it's historically validated. Um, not all religious systems are like that. You know, you read some of the Mormon texts that talk about um, animals that, you know, we have no fossil record that existed on that continent. Um, Wars with people who we don't know those people, meaning we have no historical proof that those people exist. But Scripture, time and time again, corrects historians or fits into this perfect timeline. We really don't have anything to hide from in the Scriptures. And so we can take this historical reading and look at the timeline that Jesus is putting together here. Now it continues on, verse 14 and says, let the reader understand. Now, does that stick out in your mind? Remember who the, what's happening here. Jesus has been asked by four disciples who are standing next to him. 
about this, these events and what's going to go on. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Well, who's the reader? You could argue that the tense here changes. And Pastor John Nicholas did a great job of demonstrating to us how this comes from Daniel. The language here is coming from Daniel. So you could certainly argue, he's saying, let the reader of the book of Daniel understand what they're hearing. But you could also note that the text, or the, um, excuse me, the tense, the, the verbs and the, the language that Jesus is using is in the third person. So it kind of indicates that he's talking to people other than the four people that are right in front of him. Let the reader understand. We can't read through these things too quickly. To say that everything that Jesus just spoke about was going to happen across the next 20 years flattens the text. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who have nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The text from Daniel, which was prophetic of future events, Jesus now kind of calls back on that using similar language. And he says, like, such tribulations as has not been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be. You, you have to ask yourself, has that happened yet? Has there been such tribulation as has never been since the beginning of all creation that will never be again? Are these is are we reading back on events that have happened, or are we reading into a timeline where there are still things that will happen? So this is where having this grammatical historical understanding helps us to understand what Jesus is saying in these passages. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Nothing in there tells us that Jesus is speaking in metaphor or poetry. There's no reason for us to read this text in those ways. To do so would, would, to, would be to have, you would have no clue for reading this in that way. Jesus is talking fairly plainly about events that will be happening. And again, verse 24 helps me understand even more that this is about future events. Because I just, I don't think I missed the sun being darkened and the stars falling from the sky and the heavens being shaken and the Son of Man coming from the clouds with great power and glory and sending the angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the four earth, four, excuse me, from the four ends of the earth. It just doesn't sound like something that you would miss or that you would not hear about or that the media wouldn't pick up on. This is obvious kinds of things. This is end of the world. You don't hear about the stars falling down from the sky. And when you read about the creation, uh, when you read in the Psalms, it talks about God created the, 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 the stars of the heaven and he stretched them out, spread them out like a cloak. And He hung them in the sky. And all creation is contained by the power of His Word. If He was to make it cease, it would just stop. We know that this hasn't happened yet. You, you have to come to this saying, I want this to have already happened because my view is that all of this must have happened. So you'd have to come to these words with that view in mind, and then you'd have to wrestle with this text that we're in today. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. All right. So if I take that kind of a framework for seeing the signs and knowing what's about to happen... Right? I know when the branch becomes tender. I know when the leaves start to grow. I know that the, the woods are going to fill up. I know it's going to be hard to see in there now. I can tell logically these are the kinds of things that will happen. Why would Jesus then give them this logical picture from nature and say when these things start to happen, you know what comes next. And then kind of pull the carpet out from under us and say, just kidding, all that happened before 70 AD. Now, this is all talking about stuff that already occurred. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about seeing any signs in the future. It's not really going to happen. That would be an unnatural reading of the text that we have. When we see these changes start to occur, then we know that the ends of the earth are near. We know what happens next. And you should be encouraged by this. Because this means that Jesus is going to send angels into all the corners of the earth. The gospel will have gone to all the nations. He's going to gather up His church the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his church. He's going to rapture his church from this earth, and then you pick up with the rest of the story that we have already read about with the tribulation and the return and the bema seat and the judgment and the destruction and the new heavens and the new earth. This is the biblical timeline. 
You have to be a part of Kabuki theater to make up something else. The sun darkens. The heaven shakes. We're not talking about the temple destruction. We're beyond that. After the time of the abomination, a desolation, a tribulation period, those days after the tribulation. So, how do we get to, truly, I say to you, that this generation will not pass away before these things take place. Again, you have to think about the timeline of this passage. What is Jesus doing with these groups of people? The problem actually becomes the answer. If you think that verses 4 through 27 had to happen before 70 AD for an amillennial view, then this becomes difficult. The premillennial view just reads the text and sees that Jesus is talking about the generation who picks up at the abomination of desolation, the generation who says, uh, for the reader, be aware of these signs. Not to the four guys that are going to see the destruction of the temple. Jesus is now talking about these people who are going to be in the end times. When these people who are in the end times see these signs occurring, when there's wars and famine and you know the stars fall out of the sky and all these things happen, you should know what happens next. These are the people within that generation. It's not going to be this stretched out period before he comes back for his church. This is when the sun darkens and the skies, the stars fall from the sky. And you'll know if you're in those days. You are not going to miss this. I mean, I, I don't know how you would. I feel like it's going to be pretty obvious. Right? You know, you'll be sitting there maybe with your, your body and you say, hey, whoa. Are you also not able to see your hand in front of your face? Are you noting that there is no more sun? Is it odd to you that the stars fell from their place in creation? Who's coming from the sky on a white horse and white robes and a sword? And the heavens shake. Verse 31, I think, is... Actually, the most encouraging and most important verse in this whole section, from verse 1 to verse 30, I think it's all about verse 31. The only reason it's about the other passages is because we kind of want to you know, fight through and disagree and make movies about what the end times might be like. If we could get beyond all of that, know that there are different views, be convinced from Scripture of your view, but know that verse 31 is true. It'll change your whole life. And it's this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the great encouragement. Jesus' word will come to pass. And maybe you're like, well, that sounds awful because his word that's going to come to pass is that everything is going to be violently destroyed, that everything is just going to fall apart, that the sky is going to have the stars drop out, that the sun is going to burn out or stop giving light, that the moon will darken. And it sounds like chaos and it sounds like madness. But I would encourage you that the world that we're in today is chaos and is madness. 
And that's the world that we invent. That's the world that we create. That's the world that we push on. It is given over for a time for all of those things so that we can come to see the truth of God and live forever under His rule, not ours. Verse 31 is an encouragement. Because since our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have traded lies for truth. We have traded evil for good. And not even just traded lies for truth, not even just traded evil for good. We have called good evil and evil good. We see it in the world around us today, every day. It's very plain. We call lie truth and truth lie. But in Christ, who is the very Word of God, we have an opportunity, we're given the opportunity, to reverse the very curse that we live under. And this this is the gospel, this is the whole truth of the gospel, that we live under a curse. The curse is that in our first parents, we're born in our first parents trusting in ourselves because our first parents trusted in something other than God's Word. God's holy word said something to be true. A question came in and said, well, is God's word really true? Did he really say this? Isn't he withholding something? Doesn't his word have a motive against you? He's withholding knowledge from you of good and of evil. And so by trusting in that truth against God, by trusting against God's word, our parents stepped outside of God's care and turned towards trusting themselves. They were in an unsafe condition by trusting in themselves rather than trusting in the Creator God, whose word is truth and grace and peace and love. Now they trusted in something else. And so that's why sin, the concept of sin, isn't a potty word. It's not being mean. Now, it may have different manifestations, right? Like your cough. When I start coughing, maybe the answer is tussin. You know, if you're out of tussin, you put some water in the bottle and shake it up, more tussin. Maybe that is the answer for my cough, but maybe I have tuberculosis. Maybe there's a real problem. Maybe these symptoms point to something deeper. And so sin isn't these things on the surface. Sin is doubting God's faithful and true word. Sin is trusting in our own understanding. And Scripture reveals to us what that is. The end of that is death. The end of trusting ourselves and our own understanding of the world around us is death. And so we exchanged truth for a lie. But God in His providence and His mercy gives us this path to reversing that very curse by trusting again in His true Word, by trusting in Christ, by trusting in His Gospel, by trusting in what He put forward, which is that He would send His Son into the world to live in all ways, tried and tempted like us, but without sin. 
being made as the captain of our salvation. That was Jesus who was made the captain of our salvation. He lived, tried, and tempted in all ways like us, just never once sinned. And so when He gave Himself over for sin, that was made available to us. That's the great exchange in the cross, is His righteousness for our sin. And all we need to do to reverse that curse is to, again, trust in the Word. And that's our opportunity in Christ. The truth of God's Word is put plainly before us. 66 books across all of Scripture, God's faithfulness, His goodness, His providence, His sovereignty are all put before us, played out across history so that we could understand them, so that we could see that they're true, so that we could know that they're real. There's no thinking person who doubts that Jesus walked this earth. To say that the book is old, how could you believe in Jesus? Well, you believe in Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you never met the guy, right? Pretty sure. With his wooden teeth and his little cherry tree. Wasn't that Lincoln that had wooden teeth, supposedly? Eh, whatever. I mean, did you check his teeth? I'll write a blog on the internet. Bonjour. By simply trusting in the truth of God in Christ, we reverse the very curse of the law. It's incredible. It makes so much sense that the curse was doubting God's word and the cure is trusting His word. Christ revealed. Jesus' own tested obedience. I mean, to say tested is... Coming up short, Jesus' perfect witness of faith. When we see that, and we see Christ, and we see His power, we see His goodness, we see His mercy, sometimes it takes seeing our own hearts exposed against the world around us and wondering, gosh, why, why would I react like that? Why, why would I feel that way? Right? It's like... Um, the shingles, right? It's already in you. You've had chicken pox. It's natural sin, inborn sin. It's already in us. It's not something that has to be taught. And so by simply trusting in Christ, turning from trusting ourselves, turning to trusting in Christ, repenting of our sin, and following after Him, we become reborn into Christ's image. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, cannot see the kingdom of God. It takes a re-bearing or being a reborn, being remade, being renewed, which is why we baptize all the way under. Don't dump bottles of water on your head, no oil, you know, we don't, you know. Fill that thing up, we leak it down into the thing below, we pump it out to the side of the building. It's this picture of being, being made new, cleansed by the, by the water, being brought up, being reborn, being new creation. Seeing things completely different, understanding the world around us according to the truth of God's Word, not according to the way our heart feels. As Jeremiah 17.9 reveals to us about our heart, that it's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? It's a rhetorical question. It's deceitful and it's wicked. Who can know it? And what would the world be like without rhetorical questions? 
You don't have to answer. It's amazing. I pray for you that you see this truth in Christ, that he knows beginning to end. Um, we as a people, for whatever reason, we're so fascinated by people that know the beginning and the end. Um, if you go, if you leave here and you go, you know, I say up, whatever that means, up Jonestown, 22, her, whatever it is during any portion that you're on this road, and you go where, you know, in Pennsylvania, I've lived here long enough, now I can do this. We define everything by the old. And here's what I mean by that. The old friendlies, which was the old crave, which was probably something before all of those things. Right next to it, there's a house. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like right before the old entrance to the freeway, right before they just rebuilt that a few years ago. Back up, there's a house. And the reason I noticed this house is because there's a freaky, weird, cool car that sits right next to it. Right? It looks like really sweet. It'd be the kind of thing that if I was at all handy or created time for hobbies, I would want to restore the car. Now, the car is parked next to a house, and the house has a sign on it. And the sign reveals who sits inside. And it's a lady that reads palms. We're fascinated by that kind of thing. Palm reading, tarot cards. We want to know what's coming. We want to know what's in the future. And what's incredible is the one who perfectly knows it. Like, everybody makes up stuff for Nostradamus. Right? We said this last week. We say, oh, well, Nostradamus said this was going to happen. No, he didn't. You're just making stuff up. He literally didn't say those things. Like, you're pulling on a long thread to make that be true. But you read what Jesus said. What Jesus talked about is true. What God wrote about in the Scriptures is true. The chances that Jesus could even possibly come and fulfill even a portion of the miracles that were told of him is incredible. Emphasize, lived through that. I pray that if you see this truth, if there's something in you that, for whatever reason, resists the gospel, some discomfort, some disbelief, I pray that you would wrestle with that. Really wrestle with it. This is important. This is the most important thing. I know you're thinking about work this week. All those emails that you're going to write. <gasps> Strongly worded letters that you've got to tell people why you're right and they're wrong. You've know, you got to get some invoices out whatever mindless, meaningless thing that you do. Really wrestle with this. The Scriptures start off incredibly interesting. And if you believe them, if you can wrestle with this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe that, what do you believe? That one day there was a few stones floating in space. Why space was there, who knows. Why those stones existed, who knows. But move past that, those stones were floating in space and they collided. And this collision was incredible. Because in this collision, in this two things that floated in space, for whatever reason they floated, was there some law of gravity? I don't know. Were they drawn towards each other by some force? I don't know. When they hit each other, there was some reaction that occurred. Why? I don't know. There seems to be some consistency of nothingness. But this collision caused creation. Out of this creation, these things hit, they came apart, and they're like maybe with some water and a crystal in one of them. That's a, I mean, that's a pretty big leap for me. I don't know about you, that's a pretty big leap for me. Crystal in the mud, and then maybe there was, you know, some, maybe there was lightning, right? Where did lightning come from? Get beyond that. Lightning hits this crystal in the water, and then that impacts some amoeba. Now, amoebas are cool because they have a floating foot. Right? They don't have any necessarily shape. They float around. But this amoeba then became life. And at some point, 
you have to, I guess, a, you know, a baby crawls out or the amoeba starts to get weird and it grows like a real foot, not a floating foot, starts to take some shape. Maybe now it gets all of these different parts that work together. Um, it, you know, has an eye and it can see what was created first, the eye, the retina, the brain to receive it, the optic nerve, who knows, but that happened. Then it became able to reproduce itself. And at the same time and at the same rate, all of the things that it would need to survive also came to be. The sun that gave it light, seasons, you know, spinning of directions of planets to be at the perfect angle. Because you remember, you know, your globe is not like this, right? It's, it's like that. And that's really important for the seasons. And that worked out well. Sun was 30 million miles away, I guess, right? Which is great because the perfect distance from the Earth to keep it warm and to let it cool off as the seasons go, unless you're in Florida and it's always just violently hot. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For me, I understand that. And it makes a lot of sense. Because it goes on there to talk about the different order in the world, which is what I see, not chaos. I see order. I see that it spins towards decline, not towards improvement. Right? If I want my car to get better, I tend to say, hey, let's buy a new one. Not, let's park it in the yard and see if it gets better over time because it will decline, it will rot, it will decay, it will get worse, just like my body. This becomes truer and truer by the day, the year, the decade. It is so much, it makes so much more sense to read the scriptures and understand them than it does to believe in some chaotic universe that just happened to come to be. And for whatever reason, we grasp towards some kind of an understanding. We say, I don't want to believe in this, but I believe in the tarot card lady who's next to the old friendlies, which was the old now crave, which was the old entrance to the freeway. I would encourage you to wrestle with the word. And maybe, maybe you're already a believer and maybe you're struggling with my view of premillennial. That's fine. This is an in-house issue. We can talk about that. I probably won't talk about it for very long with you, but we, we can talk briefly. But be convinced in the God of creation who sent His Son, Jesus, to live in all ways, tempted and tried like us, but without sin. And be excited by that. And let verse 31 excite you. His word will come to be. He's faithful, and He's just, and He's true. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You that You give us Your word so that we can know You. Thank You. Thank you to give us everything that we need for doctrine, reproof, for knowledge of you, that you didn't leave us to find our way towards you, but that you sent your only son, Jesus, to live in all ways, tempted and tried like us, yet without sin, that you gave us your gospel, that you called us to it, that you made it plain and clear in your word, and that you gave us the institution of the church, God, that we could be encouraged by one another.